Okay, um, hello and welcome everybody. Um, my name is Alan Manning. I'm the current um, head of the economics department here at LSE and we're very pleased tonight to have with us uh, John Kay. Um, he happens to be a visiting professor of, uh, at the, in the economics department here, uh, but that's one of, I think, only many roles uh, that he has. I think that um, what is remarkable about his career really is, is the breadth of, um, breadth of it. So, for example, he's made contributions to purely academic research, academic institutions. He was the founding director of the Said Business School in Oxford uh, to sort of policy-related research. I think he was the founding research director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and I think its sort of current structure and respect owes much to the structure that you basically set in place um, quite a few years ago now. Um, he's also um, been uh, you know, at the forefront of the sort of interactions of economics and business. He again was a founder of what proved to be a very successful consultancy, London Economics. Um, these days, um, I think he mostly concentrates on writing books and um, articles. He has a weekly column in the uh, FT. And um, today he's here to talk about his latest book, um, Obliquity. Uh, which I'd like to summarise, but having read it, I realised that that wouldn't be the best way of achieving that particular uh, object. Um, so without more ado, I'd just like to introduce uh, John. He's going to talk for about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, I think, and then we're going to have um, questions. Okay, thank you. Alan. As Alan has already hinted, the idea of obliquity is that often goals are best achieved if they're pursued, are pursued indirectly. And to impress that on your minds, I'd like to start with the following fact that you can, if you're a rather boring kind of person, to be honest, uh, ask your your friends over drinks or dinner parties, or surprise them with. And everyone knows that the Pacific Ocean is to the west of the American continent, and the Atlantic Ocean is to the east. But the shortest means of getting from the Atlantic to the Pacific is to follow the route of the Panama Canal. And if you follow the route of the Panama Canal, you end up in the Pacific Ocean at a point some 30 miles to the east of the point at which you left the Atlantic. The most direct route of crossing the American continent is through Nicaragua, and it's about 300 miles long, uh, as well as traversing some rather difficult territory. It's a much more difficult, the direct route is in short impractical, and the oblique route is how it's actually done. If you ask me where the title of this book came from, in the last book I wrote, the question I was asked most often about was, why did you choose the lurid pink cover? That's along the short of it, which stands out in the bookshop, in case any of you are interested in buying it. 
The question I've been asked most often about this book is where did the title come from? And the story of the title is itself interesting. The title came from a conversation I had with a, a Nobel Prize winning British chemist called Sir James Black. And Black had been a man who was a young academic chemist who was recruited after the Second World War by ICI to be part of their pharmaceutical division. And in the early 1960s, Black and his research team discovered a group of drugs called beta blockers that were actually the first effective drugs against hypertension, against high blood pressure and which became best-selling drugs and turned that division of ICI into a, a motor of profit for the company. But after discovering beta blockers for ICI, Black actually left ICI and he joined another British company called SmithKline. And at SmithKline, he discovered another blockbuster drug, which was called Tagamet which the, was the first effective uh, pharmacological treatment for stomach ulcers. Interestingly, after Black published the results of his research, another British company, then a small struggling company called Glaxo, refocused their research program with a view to doing what they did achieve successfully, which was creating a drug that would essentially mimic Tagamet. That drug was called Zantac, and it became, for, some, for many years, the best-selling drug in the history of the world pharmaceutical industry. Black was, in fact, the man who created more value for shareholders than anyone in British business since the Second World War. Now, I went to talk to Black to ask him about his reasons for leaving ICI. And he said to me it was, his reasons were straightforward enough. The management of ICI wanted him to go on roadshows selling beta blockers, whereas what he wanted to do was more research. And he said, I used to tell my colleagues that if they wanted to make a lot of money, there were many easier ways of doing it than research in pharmacology. And then he shook his head and said, how wrong could I have been? I've come to think of it, he said, as the principle of obliquity. Goals are very often best achieved if they're pursued indirectly. And that conversation stuck with me and became ultimately the theme of the book which I've just written under the title Obliquity. But the reason for that conversation, as it were, was itself illustrative of the idea of obliquity. Because my reason for talking to Black was I was looking a little at the history of ICI. And the reason for that was a reason which uh, has relevance, I think, in the particular political environment we're in today. Which was, this was way back in 1996, when, for a brief moment, Tony Blair's new Labour Party declared their adherence to an idea which, was, which they called stakeholding. And I was asked to go and talk to the CBI conference that year as to what stakeholding actually meant for companies. 
And the example I chose to illustrate it was the following. I took these two mission statements for ICI. ICI's mission statement, as it had been until the early 90s, which was to say ICI aims to be the world's leading chemical company, serving customers internationally through the innovative and responsible application of chemistry and related science. Through achievement of our aim, we will enhance the wealth and well-being of our shareholders, our employees, our customers, and the communities which we serve. After there was a abortive attempt to take over ICI in the early 90s, they changed focus quite radically. And by the mid-90s, what they said about themselves was our objective is to maximize value for our shareholders by focusing on businesses where we have market leadership, technological edge, and a world competitive cost base. And that, I said, is the difference between two basic views of the nature of the modern corporation. Uh, on the one hand, in the modern mission statement, the essentially instrumental view that regards the corporation as a money-making device. In the older mission statement, the more inclusive conception of the corporation that regards it essentially as a business which, uh, uh, whose primary focus is on being a business and which through that mechanism enhances uh, the, the wealth and well-being in their praise of all stakeholders who are concerned. That was the difference. And one of the interesting things about that is we now know the denouement of that particular story. Uh, ICI, for most of the 20th century, was actually Britain's leading industrial company. The share price of ICI peaked, reached its all-time high in the spring of 1997, a few months after that CBI conference, and as it happens, at about the same time that Blair became British Prime Minister. Thereafter, the share price of ICI went through a relentless decline, which continued for seven years, by which time it had lost more than three quarters of its value. Things then stabilized, but in 2007, ICI, as I say, which for most of the 20th century had been Britain's leading industrial <coughs> company, ceased to exist as an independent organization. The paradox then, which we see in the case of ICI, is the company that was, uh, was focused on maximizing value for its shareholders was less successful in any terms, including those of creating value for shareholders, than the company which had adopted that more inclusive status group of objectives. Now, thinking in this way, was not something which I was the only person in the mid-1990s to have done or been, do, been doing. There were a group of people in the business literature who talked about the profit-seeking paradox. And by the profit-seeking paradox, they <coughs> made the observation that the, the most profitable companies were by no means necessarily the most profit-oriented. One exposition 
of this profit-seeking paradox, I found in what was one of the most successful popular business books of the 1990s, indeed one of the few I would actually recommend anyone in this audience to pick up and read, a book called uh, Built to Last by two American business gurus called uh, uh, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras. And what Collins and Porras did was they made paired comparisons of more and less successful companies in the same industry. And one of the set comparisons they made was between Merck and Pfizer. And Merck's uh, approach to these matters had been described by its eponymous uh, chief executive, George Merck, as we try never to forget that medicine for, is for the people. It is not for the profits. The profits follow. And if we have remembered that, they have never failed to appear. In fact, the better we have remembered it, the larger they, the profits have been. And they contrasted that with the statement of Pfizer, so far as humanly possible, we aim to get profit out of everything we do. And at the time when uh, Collins and Pons wrote their book in 1994, everyone would have agreed that Merck was the more successful of these two businesses. Well, there's a denouement to that particular story, too. And uh, Collins, just last year, published another book, which was called How the Mighty Fall. And you may not be surprised to know that one of the companies which was a, feature, a featured example in that particular book was, once again, Merck. Because if that was Merck's historic position, from the mid-90s, they changed it. And what they changed it to was an announcement that this company is now totally focused on growth, growth of revenue and profits. Now, what then happened to Merck was in the late 90s, a class of compounds which proved to be important both for Merck and for Pfizer was discovered, a class of compounds called COX-2 inhibitors. And what these COX-2 inhibitors do is their pain relievers. For some people, people who have chronic arthritis and don't tolerate or react very well to, um, uh, to conventional analgesic drugs, these COX-2 inhibitors have been life-transforming. They're, for a small group of people, immensely valuable drugs. But as you can easily see, if, you're, if you have a pain the large market, the market which you pursue if you're seeking revenue growth for a painkiller is not the small minority of people who are not well suited by existing painkillers. It's the much larger group of people who have a headache and who can be in, may be induced to pay a dollar a tablet for a COX-2 inhibitor instead of a penny a tablet <coughs> or an aspirin. And these to be the source of Merck's revenue growth. The trouble was there is a minority of patients for whom at least Merck's COX-2 inhibitor had side effects. In fact, it aggravated heart disease and led to cardiac arrest for a small group of patients. Reports of these uh, heart problems kept coming in 
until in 2004, Merck was finally forced to take, uh, to take um, Cox, its COX-2 inhibitor, Vioxx, off the market. Merck's uh, pursuit of revenue growth, in fact, turned out to be the downfall of the company. Merck's uh, was, for a decade, the most admired company in Fortune's uh, list of America's most admired company. It not only lost its reputation, it's lost, lost, its, lost its profitability as well. Merck was overtaken by Pfizer, but interestingly, <coughs> both of these companies were overtaken by what is today the world's most successful pharmaceutical company, certainly its largest in market capitalization terms, a company called Johnson & Johnson, which has been famous for 50 years for its extremely wordy credo written by one of its founding families, Robert Johnson, which is a version of Merck's statement there, only 10 times as long, so long, in fact, I'm not going to, to, to put it on one of these slides. So, obliquity was part of, or the profit-seeking paradox was part of this idea of obliquity. But uh, the most profitable companies were not necessarily the most profitable. <coughs> and today that acquires particular significance from uh, some of the spectacular bankruptcies of the last decade of Enron, of Bear Stearns, of Lehman, companies which were wildly assertive in their profit orientation and suffered from one of the disadvantages which the instrumental approach brings about, the disadvantage that they were ultimately torn apart by the greed of their own employees. So that obliquity is about the profit-seeking paradox. But it's not just about profits, profitability. It's not even just about business. When I started talking about uh, the idea of obliquity, people drew my attention to the writings of John Stuart Mill, a great utilitarian philosopher of the 19th century, who, as he says at the beginning of this, uh, this quote, never indeed wavered in the conviction that happiness <coughs> is the test of all rules of conduct and the end of life. But despite of that, Mill was not actually a particularly happy man. And musing on this in his autobiography, he went on to say, I now thought towards the end of his life that this end was only to be attained by not making it the direct end. Those only are happy, I thought, who have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness on the happiness of others, on the improvement of mankind, even on some art or pursuit followed, not as a means, but as itself an ideal end. Aiming thus at something else, they find happiness by the way. That's perhaps as clear a statement of this notion of obliquity as you can find. And there are many other areas of life in which <coughs> the idea of obliquity appears to be relevant. If the most profitable companies are not the most profit-oriented, the wealthiest people, in the main, do not seem to be the most materialistic. If you um, read um, 
Bill Gates autobiography, and I can't honestly recommend that you do, but if you do read Bill Gates autobiography, you will be in little doubt that what interests him is primarily computers and secondly business, and the pursuit of wealth comes a distant third in that particular ranking. Second richest man in the world today is Warren Buffett, the legendary investor, who nevertheless, despite having about $50 billion to spend, still lives in the same bungalow in Omaha that he bought way back in, in 1956. I thought, let's find a counterexample to this, who um, is the most plainly materialistic of the world's rich men, and thought I would get hold of the autobiography of Donald Trump. This, I thought, would give me a good example. I'm glad to say the autobiography of Donald Trump was out of print, and I had to import it from the United States, and I can't recommend that you read it uh, any more than I, even less, I think, than I recommend you read Bill Gates' autobiography. But I was interested when I opened the very first page, and the first line of Donald Trump's autobiography says, I don't do it for the money. I've got a lot of money, he says, more money than I could never, ever need. I do it, he says, to do it. Deals are my art form. And in Trump's statement, I think we can see the echoes of what John Stuart Mill said about happiness in what he has to say about his pursuit of money, even though I doubt very much whether Donald Trump had ever come across the works of John Stuart Mill. So this is not simply a story about money. It's not simply a story about business. It's not, uh, it's not a story about the kind of things we typically do in this institution here. In a way, what I'm arguing against is the degree to which economics and business is today almost the last bastion of the kind of modernism that swept through most of the areas of, uh, uh, of the way we think about life in the course of the 20th century. The most famous example is probably the example of modernism in architecture. In the 20th century, a group of architects believed that they were essential technology, modern technology essentially, released them from the kind of conventions and traditions that had governed architecture for hundreds, even thousands of years. In a famous phrase, Le Corbusier said that a house is a machine for living in, and what he designed is what you will see on the left of the slide, the first tower blocks, which you can still see in the outskirts of, uh, of Marseille. But actually, the very functionality of these buildings proved not to be functional. <coughs> People didn't like living in them. They trashed the common parts. And uh, another an architectural commentator, Charles Jenks, famously said that the end of modernism was when the city of Chicago, the city of St. Louis, rather, demolished in the early 1970s two very large tower blocks which had won architectural prizes only 20 years later. The contrast is with the oblique construction of Notre Dame, 
which was built by many people over 200 years, and when they started building it, no one had the slightest idea what it was going to look like in the end. If um, these are perhaps the two most famous buildings in France, representative of very different styles, very different approaches, the direct and the oblique. Some of you may know, if, if you don't, I do recommend this book to you, Ernst Gombridge's uh, Introduction to Art. And what he does in the very first chapter is to make this comparison between uh, engraving by Dürer done in the early 16th century uh, when realistic painting was essentially, realistic art was being created more or less for the first time <coughs> historically. And Dürer's drawing of a hair is indeed wonderfully realistic. Picasso's representation of a cockerel, on the other hand, is not and Gombridge makes the point that we can anticipate that if Picasso had wanted to draw a realistic picture of a cockerel, he actually had the technical skills in order to do so. But what actually Cho Picasso chose to draw was something that captures the aggression and stupidity of a cockerel rather better than a realistic picture of a cockerel would do. And what Art Picasso said about his work was art is the lie that reveals the truth to us. And that is actually what he was doing in this kind of representation. So obliquity is something that is characteristic of many different aspects of our lives and activities. But why? Most of you in this hall will have been brought up in the kind of modernist traditions of, uh, of economics and business today, and will be, as I was for most of my career, I think, stuck on the idea that you're much more likely to maximize something if you set out to do it than you're not. There clearly is a paradox in why this might not be so. And uh, that's what, why it took me kind of almost 15 years, really, from beginning to think about this concept of obliquity to actually setting out what it was I thought about it. Why is it that you can be more successful in achieving something if you don't set out directly to do so uh, than if you try? I think the reasons for that fall basically into three categories. The first is that most of the goals which we have in life are actually complex, they contain elements in them that are incompatible and are incommensurable, uh, and we learn about the nature of these goals through the process of trying to realize them. So I've, um, this someone noted the other day, is actually the only equation that appears in the book. It uh, describes the United Nations Human Development Index which they published every year to show the, the level of human development, as they described it, achieved by the countries uh, which they investigate. All you have to do is uh, look at L, which is life expectancy at birth in the country, R, which is the proportion of adult literacy, E, which is the proportion of the population, uh, of the eligible population in, in secondary or 
tertiary education, and G, which is GDP per head of purchasing power parity. And if you just shove these variables into this particular formula, you get the Human Development Index, which the UN computes each year to three places of decimals. Well, I think we all understand what these guys are trying to do, and in some ways we can, we can admire it. You won't be surprised to hear that Canada, Norway, Iceland always come top of the, uh, of the HDI League. And uh, when I last looked, Sierra Leone came bottom. But there are countries that are off the bottom because they don't have good enough statistics to be plugged into the, uh, the HDI index countries like, like Burma and Afghanistan. But the truth is, if it wasn't the case that Canada and Norway came top, we would, I think, revise the Human Development Index rather than revise our opinions about Canada and Norway. That is, we are telling the HDI what we want it to do rather than it giving us any information we didn't have before. And when one looks at the elements of that particular formula, I think one is bound to ask why. Why should we put these particular components in rather than slightly, slightly different ones? Uh, and indeed, if people were to argue that they should be slightly different, what is even the basis on which we would conduct the argument? Is this exercise actually really saying any more than Aristotle said <coughs> 2000, a year, uh, 2,000 years ago? And he said, what is the highest good in all matters of action? As to the name, there is almost complete agreement, but people disagree however, about what the exact content of that particular meaning is. So the first issue is that most of the goals we have in life and in finance and business are actually complex, have many dimensions to them, and we learn about what they are through the process of trying to realize them. The second uh, issue is the limits of our capacity for abstraction. For some of my life, I lived in Oxford, and that was before I had lived in London. And when I lived in Oxford, some friends invited me to dinner at their house in Hyde Park Gardens. And they helpfully told me that the nearest tube station to Hyde Park Gardens was Lancaster Gate. So I took the train from Oxford to London, which arrives at Paddington Station, and I naturally looked at the tube map to see the best way of getting from Paddington to Lancaster Gate. And as you'll see if you look at the tube map on the, uh, on the bottom left or on the way home, you'll see it's pretty easy. You go two stops on the circle line from Paddington to Nottingham Gate, and then two stops on the, on the central line from Nottingham Gate to Lancaster Gate. If you look at the right of this slide, however, you can see what you're actually doing, which is uh, that the journey uh, to walk from Paddington Station to Hyde Park Gardens is in fact less than 500 yards. <laughs> and what you are doing is traveling a couple of miles uh, uh, west on the, on the circle line in order to retrace the couple of miles east on the central line. The story gets more extraordinary than that, because last year when I set up this diagram, I thought I would ask the Transport for London website 
what is the best way to get from Paddington Station to Hyde Park Gardens. Uh, they don't recommend the tube, as a matter of fact. What they do recommend is that you go out the front of Paddington Station, you get a bus going north up Eastbourne Terrace, you get up the off at the first stop, and you then walk back down Eastbourne Terrace <laughs> and complete your journey on foot to Hyde Park Gardens. And there is, if you think about it, a sort of demented logic to that particular answer. If you are going to use the services for tra of transport for London to get from Paddington Station to Hyde Park Gardens, that is actually the quickest way to do it. <laughs> but of course, it is a great deal quicker not to use the services of transport for London in making that journey at all. Now, what is the lesson for this? The lesson from the Transport for London website is that actually to answer a question relevantly, you have to formulate that question rather carefully than the problem which we realized in looking at how we define our goals. But you might be tempted to think that the message of this is that the tube map, the London tube map, is actually not a very good abstraction, not a very good model. But uh, in fact, the London tube map is regarded around the world as an inspired piece of graphic design. It is actually a brilliant model, which has been adopted in many other cities, and which tens of millions of people have used effectively to arrive at their destination. It's just not a very good problem model for the particular problem of how do you get from Paddington Station to Hyde Park Gardens. But how do you know that? The only way you know it is by having the kind of contextual knowledge of London which enables you to know when you have a problem to which the tube map is helpful and when you have a problem for which it is not helpful. As it were, without that judgment, without that knowledge of context, we cannot use models effectively. And a lot of the problems which we've had in business and finance over the last two or three decades have been <coughs> failing to understand that from believing uh, that we could find models that in some sense, models that were abstractions, but which nevertheless represented in some other sense the truth and not understanding that our model is, as Picasso said of his work, uh, the, li the lie that it, if it's a good model, just as he was talking about a good picture, the lie that enables us to realize the truth. So the second reason why this kind of direct approach is so often misleading is we can only apply it by means of simplification and abstraction but the ability to choose the right simplifications and abstractions is problem-specific and something that we can only learn through the process of actual problem solution. So that's the second issue, the limits of abstraction. The third is the existence of essentially irresolvable uncertainty. I promise this is the only occasion this evening, or indeed ever, or rather it's the only example which I will quote Donald Rumsfeld. <coughs> but some of you will know this quote from Donald Rumsfeld, which remains one of the best expositions 
of the, the distinction made in the 1920s by, by Frank Knight and Maynard Keynes between risk and uncertainty. Risk being the kind of things that can meaningfully and helpfully be described probabilistically, while uncertainty is the kind of uncertainty about the world that cannot usefully be described in probabilistic terms. It's a distinction between the known unknowns, the things that we, we know we do not know, and the unknown unknowns, the things we don't know we don't know. And it's because much of the world we're dealing with is characterized by that irresolvable uncertainty uh, that we have to approach many problems obliquely because there is no other meaningful way of doing it in a world subject to this kind of uncertainty. Now, there was an interesting debate some of you will be aware of in the 1920s between Keynes and Knight on the one hand and Frank Ramsey and later Savage and others on the, uh, on the other. A debate which Keynes and Knight essentially lost <coughs> and Bayesian statistics based on assumptions about uh, the existence of subjective probability distributions came to dominate the way we think about a whole variety of problems in these areas. And that, I believe, is the source of quite a lot of the difficulties which we've encountered. I'm going to hint at some of the issues which that raises a bit later in what I have to say, but for the moment I simply want to note that there is, in many of the problems we deal with, this endemic kind of uncertainty. So that all in all, we need oblique approaches because we live in a world where the capacity for abstraction is limited, where our knowledge of our goals is achieved incrementally, uh, and in which the world is characterized by this kind of irresolvable uncertainty. And in worlds that are characterized in these ways, processes of adaptation, evolutionary processes essentially, are generally more effective than attempts to design and plan our way through. And that's essentially what is the story behind obliquity. I've, um, once wants to describe the reason why obliquity pays so often in one kind of phrase. It's the phrase that a number of people have used, which is that evolution is smarter than we are. Or I would prefer to describe it as adaptation is smarter than we are, because actually evolution conjures up a particular Darwinian model, which needs to be generalized rather more in its application issues in, in social science. I put a fish on this, uh, on this particular story because I'm fascinated by one of the striking evolutionary examples which is used, which is a story of cleaning fish and cleaning stations. Some of you may know this phenomenon which has been observed in tropical waters, where what happens is you have large predatory fish that attend at what have become described <coughs> as cleaning stations where they go and they open their large mouths with their rather sharp teeth. And then groups of cleaner fish swim into their mouths, feed off the plaque and bacteria which accumulate on the teeth of these fish, uh, 
and then swim out again, you know, unharmed. It's an extraordinary phenomenon, and it's an extraordinary phenomenon that nobody designed. Obviously, nobody designed it. And yet, if we think about that for a moment, we might ask the question, what would you do if you were, as it were, a management consultant appointed to advise the, uh, either the cleaner fish or the sharks you know, in this particular case? Uh, I can have spent part of my life building the kind of models that would be designed to give answers to that question. And you can think of the list of variables which would, uh, uh, would need to put together. Uh, and the contingent advice which you would give to both parties to, to that particular transaction. I've no idea what that particular advice would be or what the outcome of a model would be, although I do know, having done that kind of thing for a living, that I could come up with whatever answer to the question via my model that I thought my client, whoever it might be in that particular instance, actually wanted. The point is that this kind of direct intervention, the, as it were, rationalization of what is going on here, is likely to make things worse, not to make things better. That's the lesson of saying that adaptation is smarter than, than we are. And what we're doing here is simply we're taking an application of one of the most extraordinary arguments of the 19th century, in which one of the story arguments for the existence of a divine creator was essentially framed as the argument for, for design. That is, a famous theologian called William Paley used the metaphor of a watch which you found on the heath. And he said, if you stumbled across a watch as you walked across the country, you would realize immediately that something of this complexity could only have been created by some sort of intelligence. This argument for design was for thousands of years one of those powerful arguments for the existence of some kind of omnipotent being or God. And yet what happened in the 19th century was Darwin threw that argument back in the face of the people who had advocated it by sh demonstrating how through the mechanisms of evolution and adaptation you could actually construct things that were more complicated than any human intelligence could actually conceive of. And the truth is, if you think about it, that is actually how complex watches have been constructed. That they're not the products of some original design, they're actually the products of centuries of adaptation through the processes, uh, through the processes of watchmaking. Now, those of you who are economists still in this room still ought to, or are likely to be, be somewhat worried about the structure of my argument. Because one thing that everyone is taught in their first year economics courses is, is, is the set of propositions that says rationality is about consistency. And if people behave consistently, uh, then they must be engaged as a mathematical representation in some sort of process of maximization. There is a, a mathematical equivalence that says consistent behavior can be represented as maximization. 
And since I'm talking about this at the London School of Economics, I think I have to take a moment to, uh, to answer that particular question. I spend a lot of time in France nowadays, and one of the things that amuses me in France is the kind of menu translations uh, uh, which I see. Uh, I've never quite managed to get all of this on a single menu, but it contains items which I've seen on, on, on particular menus. What I want you to imagine is going to a menu and choosing, uh, and going to a country restaurant, as one does in France, and going to the same country restaurant more than once, as one does in France. Now, the first time you choose uh, the lapin du chef, and the second time you choose the steeped pavement box. Now, what consistency is about is the proposition <coughs> that if you are faced with the same situation, you make the same choices. Now, is it the case, it's not actually very often, that you're faced with real situations in which you are faced with exactly the same set of choices. But in a French country restaurant, you typically are. The restaurant, which uh, I managed to persuade them to take it down, actually, the restaurant that advertised the steeped pavement of ox on its English translation for a bit, is a restaurant that has actually had the same menu for the entire 20 years where I've been going there. But if you choose different items on different occasions, are you being inconsistent? Or are you, uh, or, or are you, as most people would argue, having some kind, have some sort of taste for variety that leads you, although they appear to be making different choices, actually to be making consistent choices. The point which I want to make is that the proposition of consistency is one that supposes we have some objective mechanism for determining whether two situations are actually the same or two situations are different. And we don't actually have, in the world I described, in which capacities for abstraction is limited, in which uncertainty is unavoidable, and in which we're not quite certain what our aggregate goals are anyway, we don't have enough certainty to be able to determine whether we're behaving consistently or not. And that's why uh, it's rather unclear what we mean by consistency. I am flexible, but you are erratic. I am pragmatic, but you are supine. I am constant, but you are stubborn. I am principled, but you are ideological. And all these are simply pejorative and non-pejorative words, essentially, for the same kind of behavior. They're the product of our inability to define whether two situations are similar or different with sufficient precision to make this, uh, to, to make this a criteria of, uh, of rationality. Now, as I wind up, one thing I want to say and emphasize right away is that the thing I most fear uh, about uh, uh, this kind of discussion is that people will interpret it as an attack on rationality and that what I'm in favor of is making decisions 
on the basis of, of some sort of intuition. Uh, I'm not. What I'm against is a certain kind of rationality. I like this story, which I found under a headline in the Daily Mail, the headline being David Beckham, a physics genius. And what the article was doing was reporting research undertaken at the University of Sheffield, the Department of Sports Engineering, uh, by a group of people who had uh, looked carefully at videos of Beckham scoring a famous goal for England and gave England victory over Greece several years ago. And they said, we know that the shot left Beckham's foot at 80 miles an hour from 27 meters out, moved laterally over two meters during its flight due to the amount of spin, and then during the last half of its flight, suddenly slowed to 42 miles per hour, <coughs> dipping into the top corner of the goal. The sudden deceleration happens at the moment when the airflow pattern around the ball changes from turbulent to laminar mode, increasing drag by more than 100%. Beckham was instinctively applying some very sophisticated physics calculations to that great goal. And they went on to describe the differential equations which Beckham had solved in placing <laughs> uh, in the ball in that particular mechanism. Now, whatever we know about Beckham, we know that we can be fairly sure that he's not a physics genius. And the notion that you instinctively apply some very sophisticated physics calculation, well, I honestly don't know what that means. What we do know, however, is that Beckham is very good at football, and if we were selecting someone for the England team, we would probably prefer to put Beckham in it than Dr. Carey, who can't solve the differential equations, than Dr. Carey, who can solve the differential equations. There is something called judgment and expertise, which Beckham plainly has, uh, which is different from the skill that Dr. Carey has, even if we can't quite work out exactly what it is, and Beckham certainly can't articulate what it is. But there is real skill in that, and we know that Beckham has real skill, not because he scored a goal on a particular occasion, but because he's been very successful at scoring goals on quite a lot of occasions in the past. And I'd like to emphasize that our cry there is such a thing as judgment and expertise, but our criteria for evaluating judgment and expertise are the criteria of rationality, just the same uh, as we would apply in, in evaluating evidence and other things. Some of you may know the book by Mar Malcolm Gladwell, whose signature example is the story of the, the Getty Kouros, in the Getty Museum in California, which had supposedly been authenticated by rel relatively careful scientific research, but which a lot of experts pointed out immediately was a fake uh, when they were, were invited to look at it. Now, the point Gladwell makes is that these judgments were instantaneous. But that, for me, isn't the key point. The key point is that these judgments were experts and they were genuinely expert. If you and I walked into the Getty Museum in California and pointed to an object and said, that looks like a fake to me, no one would actually be very interested. And they'd be quite right not to be very interested, because what distinguishes these experts from us 
is that these people have a record of being right about these things in the past. That is, judgment and expertise are things that exist, but judgment and expertise are things that have to be ev uh, judged uh, and evaluated by reference to evidence of <coughs> effectiveness. So expertise and judgment are a much narrower category than what it is people call intuition. So let me finish with some examples of what one ought to learn from thinking about issues in this kind of bleak way. One theme which I developed at some length in the book is that we ought to eschew what is so common in the world today, which is a sort of bogus rationality in which uh, almost everyone has had to fill in performance assessments, appraisal forms, risk assessments and the like, in which people are, as it were, finding ex post rationalizations for judgments that they have already made on other grounds. It's very rare, in fact I've never come across it, that people fill in these appraisal forms and at the end, rather than at the beginning, make their assessment, or genuinely make their assessment, of what it is they do. I cite in the book what is uh, often called Franklin's Rule, which is the description of, um, given by Benjamin Franklin, of how he said one ought to make decisions, which was you take a sheet of paper, you divide, draw a line down the middle, you had one column pros, the other cons, and he went on to say you should uh, list the pros and list the cons and attach weights to each of these over a period of days and then make your assessment. And there's a famous instance of Darwin actually trying to do that in which he made the decision as a purely abstract problem as to whether he should get married or not on the basis of uh, these pros and cons. The Pros included uh, uh, the charms of music and female chit-chat. The cons, the list actually turned out to be rather longer, included uh, having to spend time with relatives, being forced to bend in every trifle, uh, although he... Uh, and then he ended up at the bottom of his uh, sheet of paper saying, oh, marry, marry, marry. Imagine a nice, soft wife on a sofa. And uh, the following year, he did indeed go out and marry Emma Wedgwood. Darwin really didn't make decisions that way. And nor, in fact, did Franklin. I suspect Franklin had his tongue in his cheek when he talked about this moral and prudential algebra. And Franklin also said, perhaps more relevantly, uh, uh, how fine it is to be a reasonable person, since it enables one to find or make a reason for whatever it is one has the mind to do. <laughs> and that is typically what we do. Try to be a fox rather than a hedgehog. One of the books I've most enjoyed reading in the last two or three years is a book by the American political scientist Philip Tetlock, who examines a range of geo geopolitical predictions. He's assembled a database over of 50, over them over 15 to 20 years, and then evaluated these predictions ex post. You won't be surprised to discover that he finds most of the predictions are not very good, 
but he looks at the determinants of the quality of predictions and the variable which is most powerful in telling the quality of predictions is how famous uh, the person making the predictions is and how much contact they have with politicians, business leaders and the media and the correlation is negative uh, that is the more famous the person the worse the, their judgments and these things are and he explains this in terms of Isaiah Berlin's uh, the, the d distinction which Isaiah Berlin picked up from Tolstoy between the fox who knows many little things and the hedgehog who knows one best thing one, one big thing but everyone who's had any acquaintanceship with the media knows that if you want to get on the Today program it's best to be a hedgehog you don't get on the Today program by saying well it's all very complicated and I'm not quite sure what should be done on the, with this particular issue in fact with most radio and television programs the more extravagant and unreasonable the position you take up the more likely it is that they will invite you to argue with someone or the interviewer on their program. We need to make decisions by being foxes and being eclectic in the models and techniques we use rather than hedgehogs who know one big thing. We need to recognize the inescapable limitations of our knowledge in Rumsfeldian terms to understand that the world is, uh, is full of unknown unknowns. And I look at the success of people in investment decision-making, which is in some ways the purest example of where you can measure the quality of decisions made by individuals, and observe that the things that distinguish men like Buffett and Soros, one of the most successful investors of our time, is how ready they are and how much readier than a typical person one encounters in the financial services industry they are to acknowledge what it is they don't know. And finally, we need to accept the relevance <coughs> of judgment and expertise and to understand that there is such a thing as that. And that's the power of my example of using the tube map or thinking about it otherwise to get from Paddington Station to Hyde Park Gardens. That is only by using the model with the guidance of a great deal of textual knowledge that you can actually use models effectively. If there is a single lesson that I would like everyone here and everyone at this school to take away to tonight, it is the lesson that models in social sciences are immensely useful. But we make a terrible mistake if we believe that any of the models which we construct or use in social sciences are real or realistic or true descriptions of the real world. The application of any model in this kind of area of thought has to be made with a judgment, experience and knowledge of context which enables one to find what are the appropriate tools <coughs> for any particular job. That's the lesson of obliquity and that's why it is that our, um, so many of our decisions best made in this oblique, eclectic kind of style. Thank you.
questions now. I think I'll take questions in, in groups of uh, three and then John can organise them. I think the first person with a hand up was that gentleman there. Uh, thank you very much. For Do you want to just wait for the microphone, actually? Thank you very much for a very good talk. Probably the best lecture I've had in here, but then had I had not had those lectures in here, I probably wouldn't have been trained enough to appreciate your talk, so um, there you go. Um, one of the examples that you gave um, offered actually a tantalizing glimpse of how you might solve you know, some of the problems that you pose, which was the, the map. So in a modern day version of looking at that, what you'd do is go, instead of going to either the tube map or London Transport, you'd go to Google Earth, which has a geographic mapped description of it, press on directions, um, press the walk icon, and it would tell you that you walk 500 yards. And the reason for that is that it's got the ability to have the map, you know, all of the information in one place, easily accessible. So you've just increased the complexity of the way in which you frame the problem, and you, know, you get the correct solution. Do you think that that offers hope for better decision making um, going forward? You know, just, just more computational ability, more information widely available. Would that, would that be, a, be, be something to think about? Okay, I think there was someone just there. Yes, my question referred to the difference between, and this is generalization with all normal limitations associated with generalizations, but between the West and the East, it's sometimes been said that the West is more reductionist in its approach and the East more holistic, at least traditionally. Do you see any parallel between that idea and the idea of obliquity versus taking a direct approach um, and, and then taking that one further? Do you think that these ideas come more naturally to any other cultures than they do to Western culture. Okay, I think there was someone right up at the left. Thank you. Um, my question. though in some ways they relate to similar issues. Can more powerful computational tools help us in problem solving? Yes, of course they can. Can problems be solved by creating sufficiently powerful computational tools? No, fundamentally. And the Google Earth map story, as it were, give, gives the illustration of that. It's best demonstrated, I think, which is one reason for using maps as a particular kind of abstraction, uh, that uh, Borges tells the story of a competition to create the most perfect map of the world. And the people who won the competition, of course, were the people who perfectly replicated the world, because that is, in a sense, the most perfect map. But it's the most perfect map only by virtue of being entirely useless. Uh, because the, the whole purpose of a map is to be a simplification that enables us to, to solve the problem. And in a way you illustrated that by saying, you have all this data on Google Earth. In order to make sense of it, you had to press the button, uh, the button walk. If you had 
pressed the button, use London Transport, as it were, you would have got the same answer as you got from the Transport for London website. Uh, any map, any model is a simplification, <coughs> and you have to know which simplification to use for particular problems. And it may not be obvious which is the best simplification for any particular problem. Uh, I think it is true that one of the things I'm trying to lean against is what one might describe as, you know, the modernist fallacy in the sense in which the, the Western Enlightenment of the 18th century was taken to have a much wider range of applications than it perhaps did by virtue of its success in particular areas of the, the natural sciences. But I'm terribly scared uh, in saying all this, as I was hinting at the end of what I had to say, of being you know, bound up uh, with a whole lot of kind of ascientific mumbo jumbo by, uh, uh, which may in some cases have kernels of sense in it, but kernels of sense that are surrounded by a great deal of flummery of nonsense. Now, the question was, what should a social enterprise do uh, if a business shouldn't be aiming at making profits? I think that question makes a mistake which I made for a long time before I set my thinking down the road uh, to thinking about obliquity. And that mistake arose from my training as an economist, which was to say, I, I believe that businesses were maximized profits. As I got to know more about business, I realized that businesses plainly didn't maximize profits. So then I asked myself, if they don't maximize profits, what is it they are maximizing? They must have been maximizing something. We all talked about that as economists. One day it occurred to me to ask the question, well, why do I think they're maximizing anything at all? You know, businesses are actually rather complex political organizations uh, in which a political process, in the broadest sense, attempts to reconcile the demands and aspirations of a whole variety of different people and different interest groups. And the notion that there is some and there is some entity called the business which is maximizing is just for most purposes a very misleading way of representing this particular activity. And I felt as if a burden had fallen off my, my shoulders as I no longer found myself obliged to approach the world from the traditional economist mantle of believing that everything we observe is about a process of maximization. Thank you. Great talk. Uh, I was wondering if you could say something about how to reconcile oblique approaches to decision making with the, the demands of modern democratic governance, where there's requests for accountability on short timescales, and the way you show accountability is by showing direct progress according to targets and timetables and so on. Thank you, sir. Um, 
It seems to me in your final four lessons there, there might be a little bit of a contradiction because we should aim to be or listen to foxes rather than hedgehogs, but we should also accept the relevance of expertise. And most people only get to be expert in a field by being a little bit of a hedgehog about it. And so, well, do you think that's true? Uh, and, um, you know, are there certain problems or questions um, that we should refer to fox types and others that we should refer to hedgehogs and experts? Is it possible that in, uh, in the idea of obliquity you're containing two things, one of which is approaching a goal obliquely or achieving a goal by really trying to aim at another goal, but the other is having many goals. I mean, the, the discussion you gave of ICI, it seems to me it moved from having many goals to having one goal, and does that multitude of goals particularly apply to organizations as opposed to individuals? A lot of issues there are raised there. The first is, was about obliquity and democratic politics. Now, you're absolutely right that modern political structures have imposed a lot of what I've called, you know, bogus account, or bogus rationality. And yet, in an odd way, the democratic process itself is very different. You know, we go along every four or five years and we vote. You know, we don't have to give any particular reasons, you know, why it is we vote as, as we do. And when politicians ask us, as they sometimes do, you know, what do you want us to do? <coughs> then the answer we perfectly properly, in my view, give to that question is, well, working out what it is we want you to do is part of the job which you take on as a, as a democratic politician. You know, we want you to create a good society in some sense. And it's part of your job to find out what it is we meant when we said we wanted a good society. Leading on directly from that, I think there is a role both for foxes and hedgehogs, but particularly in leadership. I contrast, as it were, the archetypes of political leadership in terms of the fox and the hedgehog as um, Churchill, the great hedgehog, who was the ideal leader for Britain in the Second World War, uh, but who made a whole variety of terrible judgments, you know, on a whole variety of matters in the course of his political career, with Roosevelt, on the other hand, who was the archetypal fox of the man who said that the man who said that politics was about a process of persistent experimentation. If you tr try something and if it works, do it. If it doesn't work, try something else, he said. And yet both Roosevelt and Churchill were, were great political leaders. There is a role for both foxes and, and hedgehogs. But in terms of the kind of work most of us in this room do, the kind of problems uh, with, with which we're concerned, I think we've suffered a, a great deal from too much of a hedgehog and too little of the eclecticism of the, of the fox. Now, on what, or, or right, on the multiplicity of goals, I think, I think one needs to think of, as it were, the, 
the nesting of what I think of as objectives, goals, and the actions uh, that lead to them. There's a kind of famous story of the uh, historic story of someone going to talk to stonemasons working on a cathedral and asking, you know, what they were doing. And one of them says, I'm chiseling this stone to shape. And another says, I'm building a great cathedral. And another sense says, I'm working to glorify God. And in a sense, all of these were accurate descriptions of what the people, you know, concerned were doing. And you need to think about all of these things in order to do the kind of job, you know, that created the, you know, the Notre Dame, which I, I, I illustrated on that slide there. It's a constantly interacting process. But the notion that it's nested in a way that uh, enables one to create a pyramid in which you have a top-level objective that you then uh, you then broaden down into a variety of specific actions. Very few problems can actually be effectively solved in that pyramidical manner. Yeah, I think there was somebody up at the How do you employ uh, your concept of obliquity when meeting a deadline for your FT column? wondering if you'd um, deliberately applied this concept to one of your own goals and what happened. Okay, I'll just take those two. This is all getting rather personal. <laughs> How do I actually live my life? Uh, there is a certain problem with um, an FT column in the sense that if it isn't there by about four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, there will be a black space in the paper on, on Wednesday morning. And uh, actually, newspaper deadlines uh, are probably more real than almost any other deadlines in any other, in, in, in any other walk of life. But the truth is that the, the composing of FT columns it is a matter of ideas churning around in one's mind, in some cases, for many months or years, uh, you know, before it starts to crystallize in you know, something will, that will actually get written on a particular time scale <coughs> on a particular week. And that was actually true of uh, in the particular book of liquidity you know, that we're talking about uh, that we're talking about this evening. As I described at the beginning, in the thought process that actually framed the word obliquity in my mind is something that started, well, 14 years, you know, before that particular, uh, that, that particular book was published. And even two years ago, there was a plan for what that particular book would look like, which bears not the slightest relationship to the contents of the book. You know, as it finally appeared. So I hope maybe I've given 
answers to both questions in the course of giving that description. wondering how these ideas would relate to research and the way society organizes its, its research effort. So just to give one example, but it, there are a number that would come to mind. Once upon a time, doing a doctorate <coughs> was about going away, exploring something, and coming back when you had something new, uh, and, and making an original contribution to research in that way. I have the impression that now a doctorate is about uh, the government and the, the institutions getting a certain number of people through in a certain period of time so that they will have the appropriate qualification to proceed to the next stage of a certain kind of career. Uh, and that seems to me to be potentially a very limiting way of approaching our research. And I think you could draw parallels also with the way that research funding is conducted. Is there any place for just giving bright sparks their head and letting them go off? And if, if, if that is what you would support, um, how, how could we move in that direction? How can we convince people to think in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think there clearly is scope for giving bright sparks their head and letting them go off to do what they like. But the truth is the number of people who are bright enough to 
produce anything really much through that process may not in fact be be very large. You know, I feel that the, the academic world has moved in the course of my academic career from not having had anything like enough accountability and a great many people who took advantage of the freedom of academic life to do either very little or nothing that was worth doing to a, a kind of over-rationalized, over-disciplined process that actually inhibits real creativity. And I hope, although I don't feel wildly optimistic at the moment, that we'll succeed in creating some sort of balance between, between these two. Go back to um, to economic theory for a second. Richard Layard, who taught me much rigorous microeconomics in this room, has now started to think about the economics of happiness. And the government of Bhutan has got a national index of happiness that they try and maximise. Do you think that there is a danger that in trying to maximise happiness, that they're not being oblique enough, and they might they might just discover that, in fact, the best way to get happy is to get rich. <laughs> That's, that's, that's not quite the problem which I have with that kind of approach, which is, and kind of the disagreement I have with Richard is, I think Richard is still in what I describe as traditional economist bank, which is to say if we're not maximizing GDP, there must be something else we ought to be maximizing. And I want to say, well, this is not actually about a process of maximization. We're trying to create, what we're trying at this broad political level is to create a good and great society. And that is something that has many incompatible and incommensurable components. So what I see the great, the successful political or business leader is doing is engaging a pro in a process of adaptation and steering. It's like trying to to, to steer a boat down the middle of a winding river. And sometimes you will get close to, too close to one bank or another bank, and you will know you have to, to move it back. But that's much more what it's like than sitting down and saying, what am I trying to maximize? Okay, I think we should probably end it there. Before we just give our final thanks to John, I should say that I think the book is for sale outside one of these doors. I can never remember which door I came in. It's the middle door, is it? Yeah, and down the stairs. And down the stairs. Oh. Okay. Um, and I don't know if you I hope it's very hard to get out without passing. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I if not, we'll lock the door. <laughs> there are some, some things that have to be approached directly. And <laughs> I don't know if you're happy to stay to sign book for anyone who... I'm, I'm right, yeah, yeah anyone, uh, I would like to do that. To okay, well thank you very much for a very interesting talk.